welcome everyone. Lovely to see you all here. And uh, my name is Linda Matthews, and I'm the classical music books editor at Faber. Um, and this month we are celebrating the publication of the Sound Musician. And I'm absolutely delighted to be introducing Mark Whippleworth and Nicholas Heitner for what I know is going to be an amazingly absorbing discussion on, on the intricacies of um, conducting music and directing theatre. Um, and they're both absolutely preeminent in their field, so we're so grateful that they've come along to talk to us tonight. Um, so what we're going to do is they're going to talk for about 40 minutes, maybe? And then uh, there'll be a chance for any questions you might have, and then we'll get back to the wine, and hopefully um, some book signing, because we have both of their books here. So without further ado, welcome to it. Shall I start? <laughs> I'll stop because I was so I, I, I was so thrilled when Mark asked me to uh, to uh, talk to him about this beautiful book, and that's really what I'm here to do is to ask Mark some questions, and if if anything comes out of the answers to those questions, if it's worth having a conversation about, let's do it. But really, I I just wanted to uh, I jumped at the opportunity to read the book and to ask him about it. Uh, it's not at all what I expected. Um, it's uh, not an account of his career so far, which um, I'm afraid mine is. Um, <laughs> and nor, nor is it, um, as he says very early on, nor is it uh, how to conduct work. It's actually a very beautiful meditation, um, often quite poetic um, and very revealing about um, the relationship between music, who performs it, and who listens to it. And I, could, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Um, so one of the first things that, um, that bounced out at me was um, you talk quite early in the book about leadership. Um, and you suggest that um, people have clearer ideas about what leadership means. Um, outside the musical world, and that you suppose that people are less confused about what theatre directors do than about what conductors do, and I can tell you that is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but um, you say that orchestras, you, you, you attack as a misconception that orchestras are instruments on which the conductor plays. Um, and that misperception rang many bells with me, and maybe you can maybe you can talk about maybe you can talk about um, what musical leadership means. Uh, on assuming that it doesn't mean that the orchestra is there to be manipulated uh, by the guy with the white stick. <laughs> I call it the silent musician because we don't we don't make any sound. So the the music that everybody hears. Is coming from everybody except us. So for that to be um, a, a, as powerful an experience as it can possibly be, all those people making that music have to feel like it's their gift that they're giving. And our job is to is to inspire the people to express themselves. The problem is, uh, like anything, whether it's a company or, or, a, or a symphony or a, a, a play, if everybody just expresses their own view of what it should be, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, it, it's going to be diffuse and so our, 
on the one hand, we're trying to open up and enable people to be themselves. And on the other hand, we're trying to define them in a relatively small margin that enables the audience to, to take that experience as a single, as a single thing. And I, I think that that is probably what any leader in any field is trying to do, both inspire and unify. And the danger is that you can see them as, as you get a bit stressed because you think of them as contradictions. Because you, you go in there with your clear vision of, of what the piece should sound like and how, how, where you want its highs and lows to be. And you feel you need that clarity of vision in order to uh, inspire others to join it. But you also want them to have their own view. And so you're constantly trying to work out whether their, their own individuality can function within your path. And that's, uh, that's what conducting is. That's what I, I sort of imagine any kind of leadership is, is both, what do you want to say? Please say it like this. <laughs> I'm going to immediately go off my beaten track and say one of the biggest differences between what you do and what I do is that um, more, much more often than not, you are asking musicians to play music they know very, very well. Um, much more often than not, I'm asking actors to say lines they've never said before. So one of the one of the things that I find myself, you know, so I'm, I'm now going to ask you, what are the things you say most often um, to encourage musicians to play together in the way you like them to? Because actually, I can, the things I say most often include, you're not listening, why don't you listen? Why don't you, why don't you, what, I, I don't say it like this, but basically <laughs> what I'm saying is, if you would listen to what the other actor's saying, um, I would believe what you're saying a hundred times more. What you're saying, what you're doing, does not appear to be truthful to me. That's a very different set of circumstances if together with actors who have never played a scene before, um, you're trying to uh, imagine what it will be like playing it to an audience which also probably more often than not, has never seen the same scene before. That's very different from, from getting musicians to play a Brown symphony um, as if they've never played it before. So wh what do you do? Well, listening is the, I think listening is the key word. You're, if you over-physicalise over your, if you're overly helpful to the orchestra, they don't need to listen so much because somehow the information is coming in what they see from you. If you are able to... Um, abdicate a certain amount of physical responsibility, the players have to listen to each other. And as soon as they do start listening to each other, then they're aware of the choices that we're all making. And I see one of my roles as deciding who should be the most listened to part at any moment in the symphony. Not necessarily the tune. Perhaps it's, it's, a, it's a more interesting harmony. Perhaps it's a, a rhythmic um, motor that needs to be engaged in. The choices you make as to who should lead, who we should all follow at any given time, are the ones that sort of define how that interpretation is going to be. 
again, that enables them to feel like they are creating it, but actually you are leading, leading the hierarchy, if you like, of what, of what, of what matters. It's very dangerous to think that, goodness, they've played Brahms' symphony a hundred times, what am I going to do differently? That's a, the sort of self-consciousness that you need for that is inevitably going to lead to a, a mannered um, approach. Um, if, if you create an atmosphere of genuine creativity in the room, then it will be different, because everybody in the room is, is different. Or, or even if they played it together before, they are different people than they were the last time they played it. So if you're able to uh, get everybody to listen to that, what exactly is happening now, then the choices are, uh, are more obvious. But what's also interesting is that they, they, people also listen to themselves more. Being, if, you, if, you, if you're asked to listen to an oboe, you actually listen to how do you respond as a cellist to that oboe. And so, and so if you can get an orchestra to listen, you've pretty much done, I think, the, I think you've done the most important job. And, and it's, uh, it's not as easy as it sounds, because they're playing. They are actually doing something. And the multitasking of doing your bit, playing your bit, but also listening to somebody else, where you obviously can't advocate responsibility for the notes that you have to play and everything that you have to do, that's easier said than done. Philosophically, it's easy. But actually, well, I, yes, OK, you say listen to that, but I've got to do this. So it's, it's trying to reassure people that, that, that that's where the priorities are. And you talk about, um, I'm um, paraphrasing you now, but you talk about the difference between the superman conductor and the everyman conductor, between being um, too confident and not confident enough. Does that balance differ from orchestra to orchestra, from piece to piece, from your relationship with different orchestras? I think it does, you, and you often learn that the hard way, when you, because orchestras, it's not an instant feedback that you get from them. It's only, sort of by the time you get to the end of the rehearsal process, you realise, well, actually, uh, I should have been a little more trusting or a little more pushy. Orchestras do want different types of leadership, and uh, ultimately you end up conducting the ones that like the sort of leadership that you're able to offer. But there are certainly plenty of orchestras that I think, sadly, do just want to be told what to do. And if you, if you go there and, and, and have a much more collaborative experience, they, they get very uh, stressed. Well, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. We need, I remember sort of um, saying something, and the, and the Russian cellist at the front sort of whispered to me very honestly, democracy doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and it clearly didn't work for him. And he, even though they go home and, 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 and say, um, uh, you know, uh, hate being told what to do by the conductor all the time, they actually hate not, not being told what to do more. Because they feel, well, we're here, tell us what to do, we'll do it. I don't actually think that creates the most um, powerful music making. Although, historically, uh, when that sort of leadership was more um, uh, the norm in all sorts of fields of life, uh, the, the dictatorship it did create incredible results. And you can listen to r recordings of conducted by absolute monsters of, on a human level, which sound unbelievably beautiful and subtle. <laughs> and how that happens, I, I don't know. You, 
In a way, you can only be the conductor you are. You can only be the person you are. And if you find it difficult to, uh, to, to have that kind of relationship with other people, you're not going to do it very well, even if you think that's what that orchestra needs. Yeah, it's so interesting that in our theatre, the British and American theatres, uh, there are very, very few permanent ensembles of, uh, of actors. So uh, you're almost always, even if you're working as a theatre director with actors you've worked with before, you're almost always also working with actors who are relatively inexperienced. And even experienced actors, some require, don't even flourish with huge amounts of intervention. Inexperienced actors often just need to tell you how to say a line. Um, young directors, I find directors who are just starting, one of the problems is, and maybe this is a problem with you as well, one of the problems is young directors are often them themselves the most inexperienced person in the room. How do they, how do they offer themselves as either leaders or even helpers to actors who've been around the block a hundred times? Uh, over the years, you find yourself turning into, it's kind of a sickening feeling, oh my god, I've done it more often than anybody in this room, but at least then, as a theatre director, um, you have a kind of innate authority, which paradoxically means that you never need to call on it. Um, but what you do, what you do, I think, and I think that there are um, uh, young theatre directors who don't get, get this, what you do have to do is tune very quickly in to how, what each individual actor most requires from you. Um, what, there are some actors, I'll give you an example, uh, Paul Schofield, who I worked with very close to the end of his career, he would not, could not, was, couldn't have been less interested in talking about the part, about, about what it meant. He wanted to be told whether it was too loud, too soft, too fast, too slow, and I, this was on a film set. And once when I got lost in trying to explain to him why a scene wasn't working the way it should be, he just stopped me and said, do you mean more comedy? And yet his gift was, there was a real mystery there. It was as if he was guarding his mystery even from himself reason he was such a great actor was that he, he appeared to be suggestive of depths beyond the reach of, um, of, of, of any kind of rational explanation. And yet other actors, boy, do they want to talk it out. And they're often, you know, together in the same scene. And that's one of the things that you're there to negotiate. This one will, unless you shut this one up, <laughs> they'll go on talking about it forever and ever. This one just wants to do it over and over. Practice. Mm -hmm. Neither is right, neither is wrong. But so, what is so that? How do you choose? How do you choose that? You have to. Do, well, they're they're quite. I find actors respectful of each. Of they they all know that um, that the actor they're working with isn't necessarily going to work in exactly the same way. So they respect. You need to judge the moment when to. When I work with Simon Russell Beale, it's a potential nightmare for everybody else because we think in very much the same way, and we both talk non-stop and I quite often just see out of the corner of my own <laughs> so you just have to be alert for that moment but you also have to be unafraid sometimes of just saying you're not acting this right you never, you never need to do 
that to um, to Maggie Smith, you know. But it's but uh, but there's going to be somebody in the room to you. You do have to do that. Now, is there an equivalent of that? Well, the difference is that there's a hundred people in front of you, and they sort of function as one force. Well, that's the, it's, that's the impression you get, is that it's a single emotion uh, to do with the attitude to the work come, coming back at you. And of course that's not the case. That they all, the danger is that the negative emotion, is, as you know, is far more powerful than the positive emotion. You could have four people in the orchestra who are deeply unhappy and uh, all the rest loving it. You only notice the four who are deeply unhappy. Because that, that's just the, the, the way we all communicate to each other, and the negativity is far more powerful. Having that sort of confidence to identify that, well, that is just that person who doesn't, is, doesn't want this, but the majority do want to go on this journey. That's something that I found, uh, well, I still find difficult, but I found it incredibly difficult to start with. Not to be kind of sucked into the sheer number of people uh, creating the emotional environment, and yet they're looking to you to, 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 to do it as well. They're looking, even though they might be uh, tired or they've played it before, they do look to the individual to, to give them an environment in which they can remember how wonderful it is to play this piece. And how do you, how do you negotiate being, starting out, how do you negotiate being the youngest person in the room? Um, well, the other day I was the oldest person in the room. It's far harder. But it's going to be fun that happens, isn't it? I doubt it was quite traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly feeling that I had that they were looking, people were really looking to me for the answer. I mean, when I started conducting, I, I, there were not um, very many young conductors around. Um, now there are a lot of young conductors, and I think that you could argue that's a greater pressure for them. But f certainly, when I started, there was a lot of, um, you know, what do you know, you're, you're only 20, whatever. But um, I don't think they, they will take your idea if, if, if they believe in it. Mm. It never, I think it was more of an excuse not to, um, not to react than a genuine problem. One biggest, most noticeable difference between your job and mine is that I don't perform, and you do. Um, uh, just talk a bit about to what to what degree do you think that getting up there on the day, your physicality on the day, is the core of your work, or is the core of your work uh, thinking about and exploring the piece in rehearsal? A lot of people always say to me, you know, you're, you do all your work in rehearsal, right, and then you're just there in the performance to sort of make sure that happens again, that everything happens as you've rehearsed it. And I don't think so. I think the performance is the most important part of your job. That's it's the most important part of the whole process of making music, is having the audience being part of it too. So I think you are there as an individual to um, allow 100 people to turn up the volume. I don't mean literally, but just to sort of give the performance. You're the sort of safety net, in a way, to encourage risk. There are conductors, there are orchestras that work without conductors and they do it pretty well. Um, but I would maintain that if there's a large number of people uh, without a definite leader, they're going to play safe more often 
in order to, to stay together and, to, and, and the opportunity to be spontaneous without a single person in front of them kind of asking for such spontaneity or encouraging a risk in the knowledge that they can, they can hold it all together if that risk doesn't come off. I think that's a crucial, a crucial thing. And I do think you have a responsibility for, to the audience, which I, I used to find very hard to accept. Sort of that, I, that there was a responsibility to the audience. I felt that the orchestra was my audience in a way, and my job was to inspire them, and they, in return, then would obviously inspire the audience. But that was more just my feeling awkward about being at the centre of attention. That was a sort of psychological problem I had. It's like, well, at a certain point, you think, well, you're doing this job, so if you feel a bit awkward about standing up in front of these people, you probably shouldn't be doing this job. And just realising that the audience do. Uh, engage in the single individual who's there. They may find it distracting and, and, and close their eyes and, or not want to have that um, specific individual as part of their experience. But most people see it as a sort of guide to what's happening. Not so much in a specific sense, oh, you must listen to the basses here because I'm conducting the double basses, or now let's l l listen to what's going on over here. But in a more... Um, more interesting sense of being at the centre of the, the connection that's happening between the people in the room and the people on the stage, and somehow being that conduit, both for the orchestra to play to the audience, but also to enable the orchestra to get a greater sense of focus that the audience are bringing. And that's, it's, a very, um, it's a very privileged part of the job to be involved in performance. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel not being able to be there. I mean, I've always thought it must be rather stressful to not be, not, not be there. It's, it's, stress, it's, stress, it's really stressful sitting out, in the, out front and watching it. That is stressful. Um, uh, perf performing would be enormously stressful to me. I wouldn't be able to do it, nor would I be able to do it a hundred times, let alone um, eight times a week for a year. But um, I, 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 I get bored. Um, and one of my jobs is to try and create circumstances where they're not going to get bored doing it um, eight times a week, however long. Um, but um, no, I, I, the most stressful thing of all is to sit watching it, um, experiencing it, not connecting. That's his. And it does, you know, I think. It's rare that it connects better than you'd hoped. Um, Is that because you don't trust that it's going to work? It sometimes just doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the first performance in our world, the first preview, um, is always the is always an you can lie to yourself only to an extent. I, mean, I write about my book that it. Comedy is if, if if a play is supposed to be funny and it's not, there's there's no you can tiptoe around it. Um, I, I have tried to persuade groups of actors. I've tried to persuade playwrights that it's fine. They're smiling, um, but <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really wash. But the even more lethal is the absence of that unmistakable form of concentration, which means everybody's still. If you are 
a theatre director sitting in an audience and you can always tell that it's not reached out and grabbed them. That, yeah, that's, that's pretty stressful. Um, it would be easier under those circumstances, that, under some of those circumstances, to be out there doing it. But then I imagine there's nothing more stressful than being um, up on stage knowing you're not connecting to. But, um, but at least you can... Um, at least you can focus on concentrate on connecting with your fellow actors. So yeah, I, d I no, I'm glad not to perform um, <laughs> most of, most of the time. Uh, you talk about um, actually before we move on. One of my favourite passages in the book is when you talk about um, the importance of the upbeat, and you talk about again I'm paraphrasing monstrously. Um, the downbeat being almost beside the point because everything important has happened by then. Could you just kind of um, explore that a bit? About the, the because I really felt I was kind of, you were allowing me under your skin as far as actually the way you do it is concerned when you talk about that. I think your gestures are an invitation to the player to, to do what you hope your gesture means, as opposed to a command. Um, because, as, as, we, as I said right at the beginning, that invitation still enables their contribution to be part of the decision. But the point is they decide how to play, whether the, the sort of level of accent or the level of volume or the level of expression. They make that decision before they make the sound. It's like all of us when we speak. We, you breathe to speak, and, and, and your intonation and your expression comes from how you how you prepared it. So we have to be in advance. We have to, to sell our idea b before it happens. So we give the entire performance a breath early to the audience, uh, the audience hearing it. And as I'm sure you many of you know, we talk about upbeats and, as being the invitation, and, and downbeat is, is where people play. But of course, unless the piece is, unless the piece is one note long, uh, that, that note is, is going to have to be a, a breath to the next note, and, and, and so on and so on and so on, until you get to the, to the penultimate note, note of the piece, at which point you, you, you send your final invitation, and, and, then, and then that final downbeat is there. But it's, um, what's interesting about the upbeat as an invitation is it does demand the orchestra to, to partake in the responsibility that that asks of them. And there are plenty of conductors who can um, express themselves through a very clear series of downbeats that are kind of confirmation of what the player is doing. But, and some orchestras like that. And some orchestras, but some orchestras want a very, a love, the freedom that comes with, essentially with the breath and, 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 and those are the ones that I, I uh, it, a lot depends on the, on the people really close to you, because they're the people who are sending the message back, if you like. And how they interpret your body language is often key to whether it's, it's going to work or not. And, and, and if I struggle with situations in which the people close to me are, are kind of resistant to that physical approach. But I think it's, it's uh, always being one step ahead of the experience is uh, it can be odd at times mm -hmm. just because you're never 
you, you can't afford to be completely in it because if you're if you're in it, then you're not preparing what comes after that. I I'm not complaining. I have a wonderful experience. It's just a bit early. <laughs> <laughs> you what? Another big difference between you and me is that you're. I'm sorry, sorry. I just thought of something. Just yeah. The, what's also interesting about that is, of course, that you is that what you hear. So how you do, how you do the next invitation has to respond to how they interpreted the first one. So how they how they play, how they took your invitation initially, affects what you need to do for the secondary invitation. If if it's quite a long. Um, stretch of music in which it's all it's all rather a similar world, and they got the idea in, in, in the first um, in the first instance. Then it's lovely; you're just sort of swimming along with them. But if they misinterpreted that invitation, you then have to respond. Well, okay, do I what? How do I? What do I have to do physically to to ask again? And so you're always, you, although you're trying to be one beat ahead to create, you also have to be completely in the moment to respond. And um, uh, that's why a robot could never conduct. Because a robot, and they've made one that can. They made, Sony made a, one that stood in front of a very good professional orchestra and beat time to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And the orchestra played. But they only followed. And because the robot wasn't listening to what the orchestra <laughs> were doing, um, the performance was only ever going to be one thing. And so I, ultimately, the sort of challenge of conducting is how to how to invite and how to respond almost simultaneously. You're talking much more like an actor than a director. You know? <laughs> the, the language you're using there is the language that actors would use about being in the performance, listening to each other, making invitations to each other, responding to each other. Um, by the time by the time performance happens, obviously, a theatre director is genuinely superfluous to retirement, to requirements. You talk about when to let go. We really have to let go. We have to go, we really have to say, it's yours now. But what does it mean letting go if you're the conductor? About finding the moment to let go. What, what is that moment? Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a constant question. Do, do, you, do you push? When do you, when do you stop pushing and when do you not give up but realise that actually it's better to let it let it fly, and every player and every orchestra wants has a different point yeah. at which uh, needs a different level of leadership. Or not level isn't the right word. Different style of leadership. Some people perform better if they feel trusted and uh, and liberated. Others do do perform better if they feel there's a very solid framework for them to exist in. And the advantage of of, of, of working with an orchestra that you know well um, is you know those you know who those people are and, and, and therefore you can give them you can give them what they need much more often. In the in the performance, uh, your decision as to whether to let go or whether to hold on has to be really a response of what you're hearing. And that's obviously if things start to go wrong, you need to uh, react to that. It's it's probably not good to keep letting go if, if, yeah. if the result of letting go is, is, is chaos. But, and, and then similarly, you, you, if an or, you can sense that an orchestra might be getting tired at a certain moment where they need an extra uh, you know, level of, 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 of um, encouragement. And that is something you can't predetermine. 
because who knows who knows what will happen. You say kind of specifically that you don't really think that uh, pre-Beethoven music needs a conductor, and that it starts to need a conductor when the music is about um, an individual's emotional journey. I guess what romantic music and post-romantic music. Do, do, do you get, how often do you conduct pre I'm putting aside opera which where something's got to keep melting together. But how often do you conduct pre do you conduct do you conduct for rock music? Do you I've never conducted a note of Bach. Um, which is lovely because he can remain the greatest composer for me, unsullied by my <laughs> But um, the Mozart and Haydn thing, I mean I you get asked to conduct it quite often and you and you always feel slightly an, an imposter because that music wasn't written to have um, an individual outside the, of the music leading it. Either the first violinist or the keyboard player would, so that somebody from within the group of musicians would be, would be leading the journey. And you feel as a result of just standing there, you're not, I'm not meant to be here. And that's, uh, it's, quite, it's interesting how it's hard to find the physicality for that yeah. when it wasn't intended. It saves in today's world, there's a certain practical advantage of having somebody in the Haydn Mozart uh, repertoire just to sort of literally make it happen. But if you've done your job well in performance, you, you try to step, step out completely. People think that conductors conducting started when the orchestra started to get bigger, that they needed somebody to, to, to keep them together more. And I, I don't think it's the size of the orchestra that needed the um, coming together. It, it's the fact that the emotion became more personal. So with Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, it was suddenly uh, Haydn, when he heard it, said, from now on, everything's going to be different. Because from now on, this is Beethoven talking to us. This is Beethoven is telling us what he thinks. And uh, therefore, it is an individual's narrative. And our job then, as the, as the single individual charged with creating um, uniformity, we have to be the person who tells that story. And therefore, I think it's valid to be out of, to be the narrator, it's fine not to be a character. We can be there um, explaining that this is what we think that the story should be at any given time. And that's pretty much most music since then. Of course, there are some composers who are abstract, but on the whole, from that moment on, music, on the whole, tells a story. And what that story is needs to be defined uh, by us, essentially. And how much, when you're thinking about that music, when you think about that individual journey, do you think about the world it came from? How detailed, I mean, I'm, this is kind of a question about music. How detailed um, does your feel for knowledge of uh, the world of, you know, the world of Beethoven's Vienna or, um, or Strauss's Vienna, for that matter. How, how much does, um, does that matter? Well, we're playing it now, so, so, so now matters. Yeah. And we can't replicate, we can't imagine what it was like, really, to be in a world where the loudest, well, where the fastest thing was a horse. So what does that, when Mozart said, I want this symphony to be as fast as possible, 
what did he mean? Did he mean li literally as fast as anybody could play it and that was what he was trying to express? Or, what, or was his attitude, well, it should sound like a horse? <laughs> well, now, as fast as possible, we have obviously a completely different context for that. So I, I, I love knowing what it would have sounded like, but I think we can't re replicate we can't replicate the past. No, but I'm go but pushing a bit, and I think this is a this is kind of um, a a big question about the difference between music and text. Um, if I think about Hamlet, it really does open the play up to me to realise that it was written for an audience that was um, constantly under surveillance in a quite strict security state. That everybody who was watching that play knew what it was like um, to have to be careful, very, very careful about what you said in case the wrong person heard it and brought you back to the authorities. Just, um, it's not what the play's about, except it really does enlarge your understanding of it and enable you to come up with some kind of contemporary correlative uh, to know that um, uh, it, it was happening in front of an audience that uh, was, if not personally acquainted with Queen Elizabeth I's security network, um, knew that it existed and was a big deal. Uh, that's a big step towards knowing how you want to do the play. Now, is, is there an equivalent process when you're looking at a Mahler symphony? Does it, does it matter that he lived in the same city as Freud? <laughs> we want to make sure we're not giving a history lesson when we when we perform. Yeah, so, so I suppose this is about what, how the way music communicates. So I think the fact that uh, Mahler went to Freud um, re for sessions is highly relevant. Um, I think the fact that he suffered from terrible hemorrhoids probably isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like how do you how do you take what's relevant yeah. in the music yeah. to how do you take what's relevant in his life to be relevant in the music yeah. and um but we it's not that long ago yeah. beethoven's not that long ago in the big scheme of things we haven't changed we haven't changed that much shakespeare proves we haven't changed that much and we, and we the music we do is is um well you know at least 150 years later than shakespeare on the whole so we're all the same people and i don't think it's that I think there are some composers where context is so specific that to ignore it is just abdicate, is not doing your job. And Shostakovich, for instance, whose symphonies are a very personal uh, statement of, of his situation at any given time in his life, not to, to know what that is um, is, is, a, is a shame. But, but simply to, I think we have to see, well, what does that mean for us now? Mm -hmm. What otherwise we wouldn't we, we, we wouldn't be playing Shostakovich symphonies as a history lesson of, about Stalin. They, there has to be a relevance to them now, mm -hmm. and um, fear or loneliness or um, uh, outrage, you know, they are not time-specific emotions. Even if the specific cause of those emotions at, at, at any, for any composer's life was a particular event. It's, it's the result of that event that we have to find relevance for now. Mm -hmm. You talk about, uh, this is not completely unconnected, you talk about 
the difference between authenticity and tradition, which which rang a lot of bells with me. Could you could you expand on that a bit? People say, you know, when people say, oh, I like the, I like the traditional way of playing Beethoven, <laughs> and you sort of think, well, what what do you what they mean actually is 1960s when they have this traditional, rather slightly heavy, slow way, and it was it's interesting to me that authenticity. Uh, and tradition should be the same thing. Because when a piece is first played, that's presumably what tradition means, that's what you're going back to. But in the case of, with music, the tradition is layered onto it over and over again by every performance that has, has taken place of that piece. And uh, you can either completely dismiss that tradition and say, I'm not interested in any other time other than the time the piece was written and today. And those are the two things I want to express. And I think that's valid. Or you can say, well, actually, this is extraordinary, that this piece is 200 years old. And through that 200 years, everything that's been added to it by everybody that's ever played it is an amazing kind of connection with those people. And that just simply to ignore the traditions that have come, that have be, become associated with it, is a shame because it slightly diminishes the life that that piece has, has created. So when you do a piece, you're, you're making decisions about well, this tradition. I know this has become this has become a tradition, even though the composer didn't didn't specify it. Uh, should we embrace that as part of? what the piece is. Is the piece actually more interesting than simply something the composer wrote 200 years ago? Is it actually a, become a combination of, of something bigger? And I, you, you make sort of specific decisions as ultimately determined by your, your taste as to what, what you feel is right. But when you end up with doing something traditional, almost simply because you feel the same way as everybody else has felt. It's a wonderful connection. And it's tempting, it's tempting just to say all tradition is, Marla said, all tradition is just, uh, tradition is just laziness, frankly. Um, it, it's, it's more interesting than that. I think what everybody brings to a piece of music that they play, why would we want to dismiss that? And in, in your world, you spend most of your time with music that's never been that, with music that's been performed often, and relatively little of it with music that's never been performed before. To a degree, you're responding to what the public what the public responds to. In my world, there is nothing the theatre public wants more than a grainy play. Um, I would think that mm, uh, half, and I'm probably unusual in that, uh, in that, as much as a half of my life has been spent with old plays. Um, and maybe it's not even been as much as, uh, as much as a half. There are obvious reasons why um, the new play is that kind of the new play that everybody wants to see is the holy grail of most theatre producers, if not most theatre directors. Um, playwrights, by and large, um, have um, are still speaking in a language that's accessible to the wider public. But playwrights also, we were talking about this earlier. Playwrights also have an opportunity if they want to talk only to other playwrights to write a play for a tiny theatre with 60 seats, um, and to talk only to other people who work in the theatre, which is great, because it is through those events 
when theatre people are talking to other theatre people, that they can push the form forward a bit. But that same playwright might next time out uh, write a play that runs for two and a half years in the West End. Uh, you talk about how orchestras once needed conductors in old music that was unfamiliar to them. You talk about an or the orchestra, the Mendelssohn's orchestra desperately needing Mendelssohn's guidance when Mendelssohn introduced Bach into the repertoire. So it's the opposite now, that orchestras are m most eager to be guided through a piece when the piece has never been played before and they can, you know, they can let the, the, they can by and large let the classics um, look after themselves if they need to. Um, just, just before we throw this over to the audience, um, do, do, you, do you think there is anything that can structurally be done to the classical music world? Is there anything that can be done um, to uh, reconnect um, new music to the wider public? And to, uh, is there anything that can be done to encourage composers of new music? Um, or can put it the other way around, to encourage audiences that composers of new music are actually speaking in a language that they will find enjoyable and exciting? Or they might not find it enjoyable. And I think that's all right. Yeah. And I think it's the, the, the there's a, I, I've thought a lot about, I'm rather jealous of the theatre audience that go to contemporary plays without batting an eyelid. People that read the new novels, obviously, go to the new um, visual arts stuff, of course they do. Classical music, why? Why has this become such a sort of thing that people don't like uh, new music? And I think there's a practicality, which is that if you go to an art gallery and you don't like a picture, you can walk on. And if you're reading a book you don't enjoy, you can just stop it. So you, you, there's a sense of freedom that comes with your engagement in, in that. And in the concert hall, um, you're unlikely to feel able to walk out during a piece of music. But I think we can encourage people to think that the chances of you really liking it the first time uh, are, are quite slim. Because if it's, if it's new, it's going to be saying something new. And we, and we often don't respond to something new until we've had time to process it. There's a pressure to, I think audiences feel under pressure to like something that they're hearing. And that that pressure, I don't know how we can not, not send that, that message, but it has to be our responsibility, not, not the audience's. The only way really to do it is to do much more of it and to normalise it. And uh, as it's, uh, that's something that I would love to have more uh, opportunity to do, is that when you're a guest conductor, you're asked to come and on the whole, you, you're asked to fit into a plan. I, the other day, I was um, an orchestra agreed to do a Mozart piano concerto and a Sibelius symphony. And they said to me, I think we need something popular for the overture. <laughs> and I, you know, it's like, if that is, what we're talking about here, that, that's incredibly uh, uh, depressing, frankly. Um, <laughs> but you know, if the orchestra, what I think is interesting is that the orchestras and the groups that do more of, of the new music are the ones that are succeeding the most. Mm. And there are administrators who, who can, they see the bottom line, but they also see the horizon, and they're able to combine. Of course, there's a practicality of the box office Leads, leads our opportunity to be there in the first place. 
But um, if we can create a sense in which a new piece is, you know, I don't, people say, I didn't understand that. I, just, I didn't understand that piece you played. It's like, what, what does understand mean? Do we understand Mozart? Do we understand, is that the part of our brain we're meant to be using? You want people just to say that was the, an experience that enriched them, that was they, they found it fulfilling or inspiring, or, or they hated it, which is also an interesting experience. The pressure for always to be, oh, I love that, is, is I think, something we need to, to get away from. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I mean, if, it's, if we love something the first time, we might not. The probability is we wouldn't love it the second time. <laughs>